Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Coming up in about five minutes' time, I'm going to be chatting with Matthew Lutton, the Artistic Director and Co-CEO of Malthouse Theatre who recently launched season 2024 for the Malthouse. Looking forward to finding out what's in store for next year. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure catching up with these conversations, and partially because it's it's like unpacking a Christmas present or something, <laughs> going, ooh, what delights and joys have we... What's this odd-shaped box contain or whatever it may be? Yeah, well, we've had a lot of fun putting the box together <laughs> for next year, and, uh, yes, eight productions for next year. It's really good now. That's out in the open. We've told everyone. Yeah. How do you go about assembling a program like that? Because obviously some work is commissioned, yep. some uh, there's a, a remount of an independent, uh, yep. a more independent work, for example, that people just went, oh my God, this is amazing. We have to give more people the chance to see it. Absolutely. So you've got a lot of pieces in play. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, a lot of it starts with conversations. We're going out and talking to everyone in Melbourne and all the artists and what their ideas are. And then we've got commissions happening internally. And then we're going, as you say, seeing independent work and seeing what work can have a life. And it's really, look, I, to be honest, it's a lot of juggling. And we create a big list of these are the 20 shows we'd love to be programming. And then we have to start whittling it down. Um, and we're looking really for contrast. We're looking for what of like the eight different shows or 10 different shows we can do each year that are going to appeal to lots of different audiences, have lots of different touch points, uh, not duplicate each other, create nice contrast with each other. So instead of a thematic approach, it's a, almost an anti-thematic approach in some ways, going as long as they feel like Malthouse shows, Absolutely. they can be of any genre, any style, any tone or mood. Yeah, almost the eclecticism is something that uh, we're really attracted to. So actually going, what is the breadth of theatre? What's the celebration of talent and ideas in, the, in Melbourne at the moment? Uh, I mean, next year is, though very high, I would say very theatrical throughout the year there isn't any realism uh, in the what, year no, at all no middle class dinner parties there's no middle class dinner parties there's no living rooms on stage it's a big celebration that theatre is often about escape and creating fantasies and uh, really stretching your imagination well certainly one of the works that I know as soon as I heard about it I was like okay this goes to the top of the of the must-see list and I think will excite a lot of people as well is the premiere of The Hate Race, mm. which is a an adaptation of Caribbean Australian writer Maxine uh, Beneba Clark's Beneba? Beneba? Beneba. Beneba Clark, thank you. Um, her her memoir, her award-winning mm -hmm. memoir about growing up black in Australia. Maxine has adapted this herself. She has, yeah. So uh, I think the memoir came out maybe nine years ago now. An extraordinary um, book if you haven't read it. But this is, yeah, her story, reflection. Well, it's interesting. It's her um, reflections of growing up in Sydney in the 90s and all the, you know, difficult and moving experiences of dealing with racism in Australia. Uh, but this is, so then she's taken that story and adapted it for the stage and made it slightly more universal. So it's about um, a variety of experiences and Zara Newman sort of embodies all those experiences on stage, uh, playing many, many, many characters. And anybody who saw Zara in Wake and Fright at the Malthouse a few years ago, for example, would know that, yeah, she is not only versatile and can embody all those different characters, but more than up to the challenge of a demanding one person Show. Oh yeah, I think it will be a tour de force of her on stage for 80 minutes and yeah, I think at least 30 characters should be moving through um, and yeah, we're really thrilled that Maxine herself has adapted it for the stage. And 
Are you directing this with a co-director? No, so I'm not directing this. This is directed by Torero Mavondo and Courtney Stewart are coming together to direct it. So they're bringing together... But what the, what the piece really requires a deep understanding of uh, Afro-Caribbean music because there's a musician on stage with Zara. So there's a... As well as the text and the poetry, there's a big music component and I think that team will really be able to bring that to life. Now, we mentioned a remount of uh, mm. an independent work, Yentl, which uh, is, some people will know as a film, but this is a, a theatrical adata- adaptation that's gone right back to the original source yeah. material. Had a, a, a limited run at... Uh, the Art Centre. At the Art Centre, yes. Yeah. Which, an independent show at the Art Centre is, is an odd sentence to say sometimes, <laughs> but, but it had a short run. Uh, yeah. And it got glowing reviews, four-star, four-and-a-half-star, five-star reviews. Uh, I missed out on the season because it mm. sold like hotcakes. So uh, I am so thrilled that it's being remounted at the Malthouse next year. Yeah, well, there are all the reasons we wanted to remount it. I mean, it's um, this is not the Barbra Streisand musical. So this is the uh, original uh, Yiddish story that Singer wrote uh, that um, is a much darker story of... Um, uh, Yentl, who wants to go into a veshiva to uh, study scripture, which is forbidden for women. Uh, and this is just production is just incredibly theatrical. It's queer. Like it sort of has, um, it's set still in Poland in the 19th century, which I sort of love because then you go into that world of ritual and the past, but it's very, very contemporary on its sort of identity politics and gender politics and the relationships through religion. And uh, a lot of people, yeah, didn't get to see it when it was at the art centre. So, uh, and also, I'm just excited by it. it's in English and Yiddish, and it's wonderful to b- bring that culture and that sort of multilingualism to the Malthouse. Which is becoming something of a trademark of the Malthouse. And if we look at mm. uh, the two shows we've already talked about, yep. uh, of a Caribbean Australian writer uh, and now uh, a Yiddish story. Yes. Um, the Malthouse really does seem to have absolutely committed, not just kind of pay lip service to the idea of cultural diversity on stage, but really committing to saying, no, this is... Theatre needs to reflect modern Australia. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a huge task about, you know, the, the stories that uh, we want to be hearing on stage, the stories that we haven't heard in the past and putting them on stage. And, I mean, a big part of Malthouse is also self-determination for those artists. It's to tell the stories they want to tell in their voice in the way they want to. Um, and, yes, certainly... Yentul and the hate race and then we've also got Joel Bray coming up after that. about to mention Joel, which again (laughs) uh, we then have a queer Wiradjuri man Mm. uh, exploring uh, his Pentecostal upbringing uh, in a a, a, what will be, like all of Joel's work, deeply personal Yes, uh, but I'm sure provocative and celebratory and camp and Unforgettable. Yes. Well, I think um, all, as you just said, all Joel's works are very, very personal. And he's often talked about there being, uh, well, he's spoken a little bit about there being sort of three parts of his identity, I guess, that he moves through. And one of them is being a queer man, one's being a First Nations man, a Wondery man. But the third part was actually being sort of a, a secret queer within the Pentecostal church. And he's never spoken about that. Uh, but he's really sort of interested in unpacking what are those rituals that bring us together and how, you know, it's not a criticism of Pentecostalism, it's sort of an unpacking of what that community experience was for him and also what how it links to sort of the queer dance floors and another sense of community that came from there so um i wouldn't be surprised knowing that joel likes to provoke with a bit of participation that i'm sure there'll be a bit of um audience community being built on stage both religious and and dance floor (laughs) i was going to say given his uh background as a dancer and choreographer Mm -hmm. his work's 
straddle beautifully the world of theatre and the world of dance. How yeah. much dance are we expecting to see in this work? Because dance is certainly uh, a regular programming feature at the Malthouse. It is. Absolutely. Dance is a big strand of our work. But also this Joel um, approached the Malthouse talking about he wanted to work a bit more with text in this piece. So I think there'll be definitely dance. Uh, I think there'll be some singing, actually. Pentecostalism, of course. There's has to, you have to be singing for your soul. Um, but also, um, I suspect uh, this will be more storytelling work and he's joined by Pete Paltos on stage at the same time. So there, I think there'll be a bit of a duologue going on. That should be fun. Um, the Scottish play. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, let's call it the Scottish play. Uh, uh, but... A, uh, a reimagined version from yes. the point of view of uh, one of the, well, the female character. Yes. So the Lady M character. Uh, so, I mean, this is a new play by Scottish writer Zinni Harris. And I think she's inc- she's incredibly intelligent and audacious and bold because, uh, well, rightfully, she's gone and taken the Scottish play and rewritten it. So it's about 30% Shakespeare and 70% Zinni. And she centres it from Lady Macbeth's point of view. I'm not in the theatre, so I'm allowed to say it. So she, one, she takes it from Lady Macbeth's point of view as what happens when you're in a relationship with someone that you can know them so well that you can manipulate them or be unaware that you're being manipulated and sort of plant the seeds in each other's minds. So gaslighting. It's the sense of gaslighting, that, that love, where love and gaslighting <laughs> meet, perhaps. Um, but also uh, Zinni rewrites um, the second half the story completely i mean uh zinni's sort of great um idea or proposition is that it makes no sense that macbeth goes mad uh that i mean sorry that makes no sense that lady macbeth in the original goes mad uh, and that it should be macbeth and so that gets reversed so we're seeing uh as macbeth descends into madness uh lady macbeth rises and becomes the ruler of scotland and you said that zinni is rewriting a lot mm. of the play herself yes is she maintaining that shakespearean dialogue or is it will there be a contrast between the words of shakespeare and then her own much more contemporary text uh, it's slippery it moves between the two so it's uh there's moments of shakespeare but sort of um, a very clear shakespeare not a dense shakespeare and then the other text is contemporary so i mean one of the things that i love about this is i i've never directed a shakespeare play before because to be honest i do find the language uh confronting like I find it, I still, most Shakespeare productions I see, I uh, I understand 30 or 40% and the other 50% washes over to me as a great poetic experience. But um, this is a, uh, an adaptation and a version where I think you understand every word. And given that uh, it is working with a Scottish playwright, mm-hmm. is there then the hope, as with other Malthouse productions in the past, that this will then tour internationally? Uh, no, this one, so this is actually already premiered in Scotland. I was okay. going to go and see the premiere over in fe- February. So um, we, though, because of our relationship with a few theatres in Scotland, were able to secure the Australian rights. Uh, for So this is the first time it will be done in Australia. Great. Coming up after that, there's a work by Back to Back Theatre, yeah. the amazing world-class Geelong Theatre Company. Yeah, I'm very, very excited that they're coming back to the Malt House. This is their first work in three years. Uh, it's called Multiple Bad Things. And uh, it's three only three from the ensemble. And they set out to imagine a utopia that they're going to construct together to survive all the multiple bad things that are happening in the world at the moment. And, of course, when you want to create a utopia, you have to decide on the rules. And I don't think they really agree on what the rules are. So it becomes a big, very funny, very confronting 
truth-saying piece about uh, what would be the new hierarchies we would put in place if we wanted to build uh, a beautiful new world. That sounds like a very back-to-back theatre proposition. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Matt Lutton, who's the Artistic Director and Co-CEO of Malthouse Theatre. Matt, before we talk about some of the other highlights in the program later in 2024... Talk to us about the the model, the ticket buying model that the Malthouse uses, because I know you've moved away from the traditional subscription season. Yes, we, yeah, we have. So now um, we're much more focused on single ticket buyers, uh, which means that like for next year, we've announced all the eight shows, uh, but only the first four shows are on sale. So we're really sort of focusing everyone's attention, saying these are the shows that are coming up in your immediate future. And then in February, we'll put the shows for the second half of the year on sale. Uh, and it really then allows us uh, for the artists and for the audiences just to focus on the work that's happening because it sometimes feels a little bit like you know trying to sell and communicate a show that's happening in 12 months time is a long lead time yeah but that must have also then to move into a newer model must have Mm. been a financial risk for the company as well because the benefit of a subscription season is you have this guaranteed cash flow Mm. at the start of uh well the at the end of the the year previous yes to support productions and planning and the year ahead and so forth yes so definitely we've i mean we've always had a desire to move away from the subscription model it's never been the right fit for the malt house but we couldn't change that until the pandemic so there was the actual disruption of the pandemic for three years where everyone's finances went out the window uh and really there was a decision post pandemic of whether we want to rebuild it or not and we decided this is uh this is the moment we will not put that in place and we will pursue a different model now We won't necessarily talk about everything else that's coming Mm -hmm. up in the rest of the year, but uh, the fact that there is a new work by Nicola Gunn Mm -hmm. is thrilling. Yes. Uh, Yeah, Nicola, uh, it's really good to have her coming back to Melbourne. But for people who don't know her, talk to us about what it is that attracts you to her style of work? Because I've, I've seen several of Nicola's works at the Malthouse. Yeah, Nicola makes extraordinary work. There's an incredible humour and a vicious intelligence, I think, to always of Nicola's work. And nearly all her works are based on a sort of personal fantasy that she plays out on stage. She either imagines herself as an art critic or she imagines herself as an ethical intervener uh, and sort of plays out those scenarios for an audience in very, very sophisticated but very funny ways. So this is her piece about, well, it's, you know, she would maybe not describe it like this, but it's about her fantasy of wanting to be a French actress. Uh, and she plays a French actress that is um, trying to have her story interpreted into a Japanese film. And therefore, it's about the conversations about language and translation. So it's her on stage with a Japanese translator and uh, or a Japanese film director and the translator, and they're trying to convey this story together about her mother. And of course, you can imagine when there's three layers of language happening, uh, many confusions happen. And the piece is called uh, "The Interpreter's Apologia" because I think it's a lot of apologising about the in- misinformation that gets passed around. Now, there's also coming up uh, another science fiction work mm. now. You seem to like science fiction. I do like science fiction. Yeah, I love science fiction. I love the I love the world building. I love the sort of uh, speculation that comes in science fiction. And this is Under the Skin. So uh, some people might know it from the Scarlett Johansson film uh, version, but it's actually 
the film is based on the book and we've gone back to the book by Mikhail Faber. Uh, and it's an extraordinary book where you meet a woman who is hitchhiking uh, in a landscape in Scotland. It's a bit of a Scottish theme going on. Um, and she, you think that she's vulnerable picking up these men and then you realise actually she's the, an apex predator here amongst us and she's hunting these men for sustenance. Uh, so uh, this is a big piece about empathy and vulnerability and nature um, and... It also requires a lot of technology because we have to not only create all these landscapes that we drive through, but there's a different species on stage. There's an alien species on stage. So we have to create those species, which is we're working with Deakin University and the Motion Lab down there. And we'll be bringing a lot of uh, live motion capture on stage to create a very otherly world. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm very intrigued. Uh, the final show that uh, will be happening next year is giving the finger to the Christmas spirit. Yes, this is uh, Fat Fruit, uh, which is Beck, uh, Beck Dean and um, Beck Matthews and Sarah Ward. Um, they've made works previously called uh, Fuck Fabulous and Fart Fabulous, and this is their big Christmas show called Fuck Christmas, which is is a big finger up to the capitalism of Christmas. It's not about the religious the religious side, but it's look, talking about all those people, uh, how we feel. Sometimes Christmas is supposed to be a time of celebration, but many of us feel a little bit left out uh, and are sort of feeling also a little bit um, disappointed in the way that it gets commercialised. So this is a big variety show. Uh, we'll be very cheeky, very fun, very queer uh, to sort of send the year off with a bang. And directed by Susie D. Susie D. I'm so excited that she's coming to the Malthouse to direct this. Yeah, there's kind of the, the physicality and the... The, the care with which she crafts shows is yes. lovely. So that combination of artists is going to be very interesting yes. to see. If you want to learn more about the Malthouse Theatre's 2024 season, jump online, www.malthousetheatre.com.au. As Matt said earlier, the first four shows are on sale now, so you can start to whet your theatrical appetite. Uh, and, Matt, we may have to get you back on soon or somebody else in the Malthouse to talk about the fact that you've got a brand-new immersive work opening soon. Yeah, we do. On October 19th, we're opening Hour of the Wolf, where we're building an entire town at the Malthouse that's haunted by a Mrs Wolf. Um, we're in rehearsals at the moment and uh, we're really excited to let people uh, explore the town and the stories at their own time. Looking forward to seeing what that experience is all about. Matt Lutton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Melbourne's own Triple R. Something else that is happening in a few weeks' time, running from the 3rd until the 22nd of October is the Melbourne Fringe Festival, an event very dear to my heart in which Melbourne's all-year-round creative activity that is often like an iceberg hidden below the surface except for a few peaks here and there at independent theatres and independent galleries and dance house. Suddenly, everything under the surface rears up in all its majestic glory and we get to celebrate everything that makes Melbourne a great creative city. Simon Abrahams is the creative producer and CEO of Melbourne Fringe, creative director, I'm sorry, uh, and joins me on the line now. Simon, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Uh, 41 years of Fringe now? 41 years, that's right. We are back again somehow. It just sort of always keeps coming. And uh, this year is feeling, you know, bigger and, and bolder than ever. Now, bigger is something I wanted to pick up on because yes. 
I'm not necessarily convinced that endless growth of festivals and being able to say more shows than ever before is necessarily a good thing because we know that this planet cannot sustain endless growth. What does Fringe have as a strategy to make sure that growth is achieved um, at the same time as making the um, the 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 making sure that there is enough audience for the many artists who are doing shows? Yeah, look, I actually totally agree with you. Growth is actually not our aim. Um, what's interesting is that we do have the biggest festival ever, even though it wasn't necessarily what we set out to do this year. And that's because Melbourne Fringe, as you know, is an open access platform, which means that anyone can register. What's fascinating to me is seeing, I guess, the kind of growth in demand for Melbourne Fringe and, you know, that artists have kind of more things to say right now than ever. Um, so we're not necessarily going out, you know, chasing more and more registration, but it's fascinating to see that artists are coming to us in, in droves, um, you know, and keen to kind of get their work out there. So, you know, for us, um, you know, we're always about growing audiences and, and making sure that, you know, everyone in this city knows what's on and, and comes to see amazing, interesting fringe works. Let's talk about some of the, the themes and ideas that, permeate through the festival program this year. There's a hell of a lot of queer work. There sure is. I mean, it's not new for Melbourne Fringe to have an extraordinary number of, of queer works. What's interesting is, you know, and, and I'm so happy that there's so much, um, such an increase in gender diverse and trans artists making work at Fringe this year. Some really interesting artists with some really, you know, um, important things to say and feel so vital at this point, you know, when, it, when it's been such a challenging time um, for, for so many members of our community to be able to kind of platform that work feels really exciting. Um, and I'm thinking about, say, Anna Piper Scott, who's got um, a number of works in the festival, actually, including uh, An Evening with JK, uh, where she uh, plays a, a well-known author uh, who has uh, the initials JK. Um, uh, There's and a, that's the, the delicious meta-layering uh, <laughs> irony and satire of that performance just delights me already. It's going to be fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she also is hosting an event uh, called Tea for Tea, which is an event by and for trans communities. So it's really fantastic to see the kind of huge growth in, in queer work. Enormous growth also in drag, um, which I think is the kind of growth in mainstream popularity of drag work. Um, but also to have, you know, so there's some really subversive, interesting drag and... Uh, I think there's five RuPaul's Drag Race uh, stars in the festival as well. So whether it's straight down the line or really subversive stuff like, um, you know, Dazza and Keith, Amazing Drag Kings are back doing... Uh, they're playing every role in uh, Titanic in 60 minutes. Uh, so there's some very silly fun things uh, in our clear program as well. And, um, of course, Joel Bray, um, the amazing... Um, Indigenous artist who uh, was kind of had his breakthrough moment uh, through Deadly Fringe a few years ago is back with a new work um, called Brolga, which is a party, a wild party, queer party um, that is going to have amazing queer and Koori, um performance artists taking over the substation in a, in a one night only, um, uh, yeah, all night queer party. Now, speaking of Deadly Fringe, uh 
talk to us about the the representation and celebration of First Peoples in Melbourne Fringe this year, uh, because the the dates of Melbourne Fringe coincide with the date of the referendum about the voice to Parliament on the Saturday, the fourteenth of October. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that's how it landed. Obviously, we had uh, already launched our festival when um, the referendum date was announced. Um, but there is. Um, uh, so Deadly Fringe is our uh, program that supports First Nations artists. Um, Brolga, obviously, as I mentioned, is, is the kind of headline piece for that. But there's a number of works that are going on, particularly at the meat market in North Melbourne, which we're turning into a hub for First Nations artists, but also a safe place. So on Saturday the 14th, um, you know, we're inviting our First Nations communities to come to the meat market. We'll have food, we'll have community, we'll have elders, people there just to be together, no matter what happens on that day. Um, and there'll also be some amazing art on to see. So uh, Harley Man's Najinang Circus, amazing, really interesting um, circus artist has a, well, it's a work called Of the Land on Which We Meet, um, and it's about different perspectives on country. Um, it's a work that uh, Harley's been working on for a number of years. Um, I think I've announced it as being included in the program every year since 2020, and uh, for all the obvious reasons, uh, it's taken till 2023 to, to get it up. Um, there's also Amelia Jean O'Leary with a work called Staunch as F, um, uh, Deadly Sinners, which is a, a cabaret um, kind of drag night hosted by Timberlina and Busybody. So, you know, some quite serious, dramatic contemporary dance, some really um, thoughtful, considered circus and really fun cabaret all there together in our, our Deadly Fringe program this and year. speaking of circus, a dedicated circus hub this year over uh, at the NICA buildings in Paran. Yeah, that's right. So we're, we're kind of taking over um, the NICA uh, building, which, of course, you know, amazing facility there. Um, and we've got Cassis Circus, who um, some people may not know they're from Brisbane, but they're uh, premiering a new work called Apricity um, and really fantastic work. Um, they're, they're really leading um, interesting kind of contemporary circus at that kind of intersection between circus and contemporary dance. Um, so that'll be a really strong work. Um, very excited to have uh, Cassis um, there at, uh, at NICA. Um, there's, look, there's a bunch of um, really interesting work there, including uh, a new work from... Uh, a company called Foca Circus, F-O-C-A, and they're a, a Taiwanese circus who are here with a work um, uh, called Mr. Sun or Mr. Three um, in English, and uh, it's kind of virtuosic juggling, um, uh, really extraordinary, best, uh, amazing company from, from Taipei coming out just to perform at Melbourne Fringe this year. I'm speaking with Simon Abrahams from Melbourne Fringe about the 2023 Melbourne Fringe program. What about the visual art program, Simon? How, how representative of the, the many different artist-run spaces and so forth in Melbourne is the Fringe program? Look, you know, visual arts is always a big part of um, what we do. Uh, so, you know, it's from the tiny little um, uh, Ari uh, galleries, you know, through to... Um, you know, some of our major galleries. Uh, so uh, Peter Duncan 
um, has curated a work uh, called What I Know, How I See, which um, celebrates uh, First Nations photography, uh, photographers. Um, and as always, um, we're back with Design Fringe, which is our big exhibition of design um, that takes over Linden New Art in St Kilda. Um, and that opens on the 22nd of September, so a couple of weeks. Um, uh, and that will, will be open all the way through to November as the kind of headline feature work, as always, in our visual arts program. Now, one of the great opportunities of Melbourne Fringe is the chance to see work from interstate. There's a, uh, a show coming over from uh, from WA called Whale that I've heard really good things about that's going to be on at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. I've also heard that there's going to be a musical told from the perspective of a tree. <laughs> that's right, tree tale. That's absolutely correct. Look, there's, you know, that there's, uh, there's, um, Betty Grumble is coming over from Sydney, uh, who's always, uh, if people haven't seen Betty Grumble, she's a radical eco-sex clown. Uh, she's extraordinary. There's a work called Split Lip, um, which is a lip sync work coming from WA, um, which isn't just about um, kind of drag as you would think about it in a conventional way, but it lip syncs its dialogue in a really sophisticated, clever way. Um, look, there's some really interesting kind of work coming from all over the country. Quite a few shows coming from um, New Zealand, actually. There's a, a, a real push from over the ditch there, which is um, fascinating to see, you know, all that kind of interesting New Zealand work coming, coming over as well. And as always, of course, with Fringe, there's great comedy. Uh, Sammy J's 50-year show will have its latest iteration. Uh, Scott Boxall has got a new work. Looking forward to seeing what they've come up with. Uh, and we've mentioned the, the fact that Fringe is an open access festival. So that just gives people a chance to play and explore and provoke and, and experiment with their work, with their craft, uh, and for audiences to do exactly the same. That's absolutely it. It's a chance for people to really express themselves, you know, say what it is that they want to say, which this moment in time, you know, our culture's feeling so divided, and um, I think it's more important now than ever for kind of voices from the margins to be amplified. That's definitely what's happening at this year's Fringe. There's programs like Radical Access, which um, platforms deaf and disabled artists. There's an amazing work in there by um, an artist called Faye and um, who's doing a work called Derelict in Uncharted Space down at the Chunky Move Studios that really um, considers how to um, create a fully accessible performance um, in, the, in the mode of contemporary dance with a subject matter of Star Trek. So if that is not fringe, uh, ultimate fringe, I don't know what is. Um, and, uh, you know, there's performances at the um, at Melbourne City Baths, um, uh, uh, there's an app you can access and, and kind of find a moment of solace in the state library. There's uh, a big, enormous eight-metre-high swing we're putting on the forecourt of the state library and, and taking out to, to Footscray Station as well. So we're kind of turning the city into a playground and, and really encouraging, I guess, you know, the people of Melbourne to, to play up, to have a good time and to see the city in a way they haven't seen it before. 
Melbourne Fringe is running from the 3rd until the 22nd of October. More info at www.melbournefringe.com.au. I'll be, ch- I'll be chatting with lots of Fringe artists in the coming weeks about their work. Really looking forward to diving into the festival. Last year I was jet-lagged as hell, so I didn't get to do as much of it as I would have liked. A couple of years previously I was away because I was in... in bloody island seeing shows at the Dublin Fringe instead. Uh, and then this pandemic thing got in the way. So uh, very much looking forward to embracing all that Fringe has to offer. Simon Abrahams, thanks for joining us. And uh, chookers to you and the festival team for what will no doubt be a, a glorious few weeks. Thank you, Richard. See you there. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Now, on the show last week... As part of the Radiothon show, regular visual arts reviewer Ty Snaith brought to, well, not brought to light, but raised the fact that last week uh, teachers at the Victorian College of the Arts uh, were on strike as part of an ongoing union issue with the University of Melbourne. To tell us a little bit more about that situation and where things are at, I'm joined on the line by visual artist Kate Just, who is also a senior lecturer at the School of Fine Art at the VCA. Kate, thanks for joining us. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. So um, just a little bit of background. Uh, What was, why was, why were the teachers on strike last week okay so i guess um firstly just to dial back a little bit so it was on on the 28th of august the members of the nteu included the arts faculty the vca school of art and that's where i work uh ffam stagecraft team and uh stop one which is like our student services um melbourne law school and scholarly services across um a week so somewhere on five day we were on a seven day strike and all of us were striking for essentially the same reasons even though we're across two different campuses which is that um the vice chancellor and management of the university is really refusing to budge on um, the bargaining uh agreement which is in a process of being negotiated and there's some key issues as well um, which are really around casual workforce so we've got about 50 to 70 percent of university workers dependent on the department are all casuals and some of them have been casual for 10 or 15 years Uh, some people on 37 contracts throughout their life you know um workload issues fair pay pay increase um issues restructuring trying to restrict restructures better parent parental and carers leave and better flexible and work from home arrangements so a whole lot of sticking points in the agreement and not a lot of movement at all so we went on strike for a week what was the response from students the students um were overwhelmingly supportive. So on the Monday, there was a rally um, at Parkville, which all of the different areas uh, attended, and the students came out in droves, which was really incredible to see. You know, they understand that their experience is directly affected by our experience. You know, if you've got teachers who have been working in insecure work environments for 15 years, who are, you know, well into their 40s with very little 
hope of any security in their life, in, in their home life, really, as a result as well, their work life. Um, it's a huge issue for everybody, and they care about us, we care about them, and we, we know we deserve better. Now, the teachers have gone uh, back to work this week, but the issues have not been resolved. Right. So, and actually, on Monday, the vice chancellor sat down um, with the union again and basically refused to move on, particularly on this casual work, like not even moving, you know, the tiniest millimeter on any of it. And so the NTEU walked out of the meeting. Since then, if you, if you have a look on the NTEU, Unimelb branch Instagram, there are videos of staff um, approaching Duncan Maskell, who's the VC, who's on a um, $1.5 million pay packet a year, more than the prime minister, crying, asking him how he's going to help them in this crisis um, they're in around cost of living and um, employment issues. And he is kind of taunting them, saying, oh, well, you took a week off, so I guess you're going to miss out on that, you know, 4% increase you, we offered you. You're going to miss out. You're down 2%. And he's kind of um, goading in a way. And so it's all on video, which is it's really distressing to watch because you're like, this is a guy who takes home $38,000 a fortnight who's goading a crying person who is saying, you know, my best friend who's worked here 10 years is having a baby and has no secure work contract and um, no maternity leave. Now, this situation is certainly not restricted to the University of Melbourne, uh, the VCA and elsewhere. Uh, teachers' working conditions across the, the state and indeed across the country are in a pretty dire position. Uh, as the son of two teachers, I remember vividly the the ridiculous workloads and expectation of so much unpaid overtime to do marking and so forth teaching is a vocation people are called to it because they want to they want to teach they want to help instruct in your case kate young artists with the skills and the the knowledge to hone the passion they already possess but it must be incredibly difficult for you and any other teacher to to say i want to stay in this career that i love uh, if the, uh, the, the universities uh, are rejecting a 15% wage increase over three years. Yeah, and especially when you're looking at the wages of the management, it's just, it's quite disgusting. And, you know, I actually, I have a, a permanent job. So I've been at the university for 20 years, and I've been permanent for over 10 years. Um, but this, it, it, it's not, um, it doesn't prevent me from seeing, from my perspective, a relative privilege, though I am experiencing a lot of the same issues I've um noted that we're fighting for change around, um, from seeing the issues, particularly around the casualization of the workforce, I mean, these are people I work with who have the same skills and abilities and talents as me, and they are being denied a livelihood, and they are putting in the same energy, in a, in a sense, as me, exactly the same. And so it's really distressing to watch and participate and kind of like be a bystander to it's really really terrible and and i think what we're asking for um 
it really it comes on the back of what you might have noticed around the wage theft claims that went, um, you know, we're all around the country, universities all around the country paying back millions of dollars to employees they'd, whose work they'd inappropriately classified or who they hadn't paid the hourly appropriate hourly wage for work completed. And Melbourne Uni- University was part of that. They paid back, I think, over $45 million in the last few years to staff. So it, it really flags how um, how illegal some of these things actually are. Um, and sometimes you don't find out, we don't find out about them until a bit later. And then you realize it's an endemic situation, which has caused a ton of harm. So, I mean, DCI is one of the best art schools in the country. The staff and students are incredible. It's like we just want to have a situation where we're honored for that. But we're in it together as well. The uni um, workers are in it, and we we understand that this is a cross-departmental situation, really. And, Kate, what do you think is the next likely step, given that the... uh uh, the meeting earlier in the week that you've described did not go positively. Are you expecting more strike action uh, in the future? I think there's definitely going to be future action. And I think what was interesting about our strike was it wasn't everybody, but what it did is it opened up this really um, kind of fervent dialogue between students, teachers, um, the union members, the media, about the issues we're facing. And I I saw people in other departments take notice. Um, More people are joining the union. And so I think it's it's just the beginning because um, we're really dissatisfied satisfied across the board just because people didn't strike for seven days doesn't mean they're happy. (laughs) So I think there is going to be definite continued action until we get some change around these issues. Absolutely. Well, Kate, please do keep me in the loop. I will keep everyone else listening in the loop and I look forward to pursuing this issue further down the track. I've been talking to Kate Just, who's an American-born Australian feminist artist best known for her inventive and political use of knitting, but uh, she's been speaking to us about the ongoing situation and the tensions uh, at the University of Melbourne and including the uh, the VCA, the Victorian College of the Arts, uh, which is the Melbourne Uni's South Bank campus. Kate Just, many thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a good one. Triple R. I'm joined in the studio by Andy Freer, the CEO, founder and co-artistic director of the legendary Melbourne company Snuff Puppets, together with Nick Wilson, who's also co-artistic director of Snuff Puppets. Welcome both of you to the studio. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Hi, Richard. Good to have you back, Andy. It's been a while. Yes. Yeah. Um, Nick, a question for you. How do co-artistic directors work together? Talk to us about that relationship and that dynamic. That's, yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of really evolved quite gradually over quite a long period of time, I suppose. It's maybe 19 or 20 years since I first started as, you know, a a casual artist and making and performing. And it's just over the last maybe five or six years that I've just started working more and more closely with Andy and, um, yeah, sort of just starting to... Um, yeah, f- first the first um, change was when they um, made the decision to put one of the artists on as a core member of staff, and that was like a artistic associate role. That um, yeah, sort of gradually evolved into 
yeah, co-artistic directorship. So it basically means that, yeah, both of us might take charge of different projects at any given time and just sort of, yeah, manage them independently or together as we see fit. Yeah, and I guess, Andy, from your perspective, as the company evolves and grows and puts on more work, this means that instead of your vision as artistic director shaping the company, you're making sure that it is open to new ideas, new thoughts, new directions. Yeah, of course, it's really important that we keep... Um, the art fresh and the ideas fresh and and I've been working with Nick for 20 years and it's an amazing relationship that we've kind of just worked kind of together on projects and it's just uh, kind of a, a natural evolution to kind of be working together now on an equal level with the kind of vision and how things go and how things work and we're kind of building puppets together, we're making shows together, we're kind of traveling to the Northern Territory, making shows up there and just traveling around the world as well. So we may as well be, you know, out, the title is always, a, you know, an issue because we don't really care about titles. We just do what we do. But Because one of the reasons I wanted to mention it uh, to start the conversation is because there are so many different titles in the arts world yeah. that people who mm. don't necessarily work in the arts and listen to this show or kind yeah. of attend a snuff puppet show or something might occasionally be going, but what exactly does a, I know, a creative producer do? <laughs> yeah. Or kind of, it's like when yeah. I watch the, the credits for a film, I'm like, remind me again what a gaffer is? Yeah. <laughs> but it's almost like we... We're just coming up with the titles to fulfil the roles we're already doing rather than the other way around of saying, oh, this is a... It's not like a vacancy as such. It's just the sort of a way of describing the way we're working more and it just means that, you know, Andy doesn't have to be across every decision over every project that we can sort of delegate a bit more freely and, you know, take different... Yeah, take different responsibilities and yeah. different things. And speaking of different things and different projects, Snuff Puppets are presenting Snuff Fest, a festival of giant puppets uh, kicked off yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, running through until the 7th of October. So a month of giant puppets yes. in yeah. Melbourne's West. Tell exactly. us, why have a festival? Just doesn't Melbourne have enough festivals already? <laughs> well, it doesn't have a giant puppet festival. This so. is true. <laughs> um no, well, we actually got um, some funding from a, a fund called Go West, which was from Creative Victoria, which was about promoting theatre in the western suburbs. And, um, yeah, we kind of pitched our idea. We've got this amazing building in, in Footscray called the Footscray Drill Hall, which is a beautiful old 100-year-old drill hall. And our plan is to kind of slowly, well, quickly now, but over time convert the space into a fully working theatre that can turn instantly back into a uh, workshop and rehearsal studio. And, yeah, so we pitched our idea to run a <laughs> festival. <laughs> and, who, you know, here we are. It's quite exciting. So yeah. why a festival as opposed to just a series of shows over? Is it because a festival is an easier way to promote a body of work rather than saying, oh, you could come and see Swamp or you could come and see this or you could come and see that? It was, it's, it's that, but it's also, it was also partly just about, um, you know, establishing, as Andy was saying, our venue as its own kind of, um, you know, artistic hub in the West. It seemed like this quite perfect opportunity that what the Go West Fund was trying to do, which was sort of identifying a bit of a lack of arts um, in the western suburbs relatively to the rest of Melbourne. And we just felt like it was this sort of perfect moment and opportunity for us to 
you know, all, all the work we've been putting in, especially over recent years, putting more focus into, you know, developing the drill hall, as Andy was saying, into a more of a functioning theatre and all the investment in that we've been making towards that. So it's kind of about, you know, establishing the the space as well as then promoting the the different range of programming kind of does also reflect the different sort of streams of work that that we do and it sort of ref reflects a yeah a bunch of different kind of styles of thing and um you know we was, do so much of our work is sort of um over the company's 30-year history has been overseas and um you know in other places so it's really nice to just sort of put a big focus in on just Melbourne and just our home and just trying to invite people into our own space to present our work there. Yeah, because often if people have seen uh, the, the work of Snuffies, it might have been at Federation Square or in Birrarung Mar or mm. at another festival kind of roaming outdoor performances or something exactly, like yeah. that. So reminding them that there is this creative hub kind of yeah, uh, in, exactly. in Footscray's kind of really valuable. It also means that, yeah, you're, you're letting people know what goes on behind the doors, that this is a place where magic happens. Yes. Exactly, yeah. We call it um, Snuff Hub, actually. It is a hub. And, yeah, it's really where everything does happen. Or we have a workshop, we have rehearsal space, our offices are there. And, and then, as you said, magically the whole space can turn into a black box theatre and um, all the lights and sound and... and all the equipment is there, ready to go. So we're quite excited about the future for this um, idea and really hope that we can open the doors for other companies and other orgs to kind of come in and, and make work there as well. I mean, not like a venue or not like a production house, but more like a, a way just to kind of invite people, artists in to kind of share, I suppose, the way we like to work as well, which is quite open and free and, and exploratory and experimental so now one of those works that people can play and explore is you've created a giant ear for people to wander around yeah inside. The, the cochlear is the inner ear the little weird snail snail shell sort of organ that actually is a part of our body that we listen with um that was a, a commission that we made at the start of the year for a midsummer festival and it's kind of an installation it's the first time we've made a, a a puppet or a um, artwork that the audience actually go inside. So all of our puppets usually performers are inside of and completely hidden. But this is the first time that the audience uh, experience it from the inside, and it's a combination of yeah, sort of spatial and audio installation, and it's a trans and gender diverse um, work where we've um, interviewed a bunch of people and just it's it's yeah got a bunch of different voices um, talking about you know, their lives and yeah, it's it's um, more of an installation um, than a lot of our other works, but then there's also a performance element. We've, we'd, we also made the three um, uh, ear bones that as puppets, so we've still got that sort of fun and silly snuff puppets kind of energy. So the, what, that's the, the, the anvil and the... Yes, the malleus, the incus and the stapes. The, <laughs> um, <laughs> And their job in the body is to conduct vibration from the eardrum from the outside world into the cochlea where they're then um, received as sound and pitch. So the puppet's job is to sort of just vibrate on the outside and conduct people into inside to listen to the installation. The so. cochlea is a 15 metre by 8 metre giant inflatable. So yes, it's an incredible thing to go inside because it's all organic and you kind of are in this space and then you're... 
inner space to kind of contemplate and meditate, but also hearing voices and, and stories of, of people who often don't get listened to, marginalised people, so the idea of the ear is about listening and being heard. Yeah. Um, Andy, talk to us about Swamp, which is having a return season as yes. part of Snuff Fest. Well, that was the most exciting thing about getting this festival up, was that we could actually remount a show that we've just made, um, which is often the case where we make a show and it's, you've put all your energy in and then it's over and it's like, oh, now we have to do it again and do it, you know, again properly or better because, you know, a first show has always got lots of kind of learnings to, to fix. But, um, yeah, we're doing it now and um, we previewed last night and it's a huge immersive um, black box show um, with giant... Giant puppets and inflatables and projections and live music and um, live music by James Wilkinson, that's sort of a long-term snuff puppet, original snuff puppet band member who has musically directed many many works and is back making amazing sounds again. So, yeah, come to the Footscray Drill Hall and come and experience Swamp because it's a it's a really mm. fun and exciting and kind of heartbreaking show and given that the last season of swamp sold out you should uh, probably jump online snuffpuppets.com and book to see swamp which is opening tonight uh, and performances running through until saturday the 16th of september uh, and if you've not been to the footscray drill hall before 395 barclay street footscray about a seven minute walk from the west footscray station uh, but i also nick wanted to pick up on the idea of because snuffies are in the west mm. you've got a really vibrant dynamic mix of communities out there and you've col been collaborating with uh, the vietnamese community yeah, that's right. So that, that um, project is one we've sort of yeah done a series of, you know, quite a lot of workshops with lots of different communities over the years. But this this one in particular that we first started working with them in early 2020. And um, yeah, it was part of our PPP or People's Puppet Project model where we um, get, you know, work with a community to sort of bring our methodology and style of puppet making and and devising and storytelling and performing and all of that and and then just get people to bring their own kind of uh stories and ideas and um yeah so there was a, a particular story that that community wanted to um make some puppets of which was the uh Urka and Lak Long Quang uh story which is a kind of genesis of the Vietnamese people it's kind of a creation myth of the um fairy um goddess and the uh, dragon, like Long Quan, um, and so yeah, we're we're also putting on a cultural night, which is gonna include. It's also gonna include a short film. We had kind of wanted to explore the different kind of new potentials of the space, including maybe like a film screening with you know, um, it's kind of the first time we've done that with a new projector and screen, and we're also yeah gonna have a like some. It's kind of a family friendly event, so there'll be some. A little bit of crafting and a little bit of um, yeah, short fil animated film, and then our show that we made together with the um, Australian Vietnamese Arts, and just called a hundred eggs. Yeah, it's called the story of a hundred eggs, and that is happening at six p.m. on Saturday, the twenty-third of September. Uh, and uh, again, you can go to the uh, Snuff Puppets website, snuffpuppets.com, for details. There's also going to be some uh, puppet workshops. Uh, so on the 3rd through to the 7th of September, those are free. 
And again, you can uh, register at snuffpuppets.com. And the whole festival culminates in the snuff party. That's right. <laughs> Which uh, some might say infamous snuff party. Mm. These are um, parties that we've held where the workshop that you mentioned is crucial to the kind of creation of the party. We run a what we call Snuff Lab, which is we invite artists to come and participate in a kind of workshop-style art-making experience where we kind of have some key artists, music, um, costume, design, um, um, and performance kind of artists who then share their skills with um, a group of participants, and then we all over a very quick week, <laughs> um, intensely make a lot of costumes and lots of performances and lots of music and then we put it all on as a big party and we're all surprised because we don't really know <laughs> what's yes. going to happen. But, but that, which is the joy of the creative process. Yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. You may set yes. out with a goal in mind, but you yeah. don't necessarily end up there. Yeah. No, that's right. It's very much just, you know, we're really open to what people bring to the whole process. And over that week, um, it's just sort of, you know the very quick formation of a of a uh, group that just sort of yeah we've got some you know resident artists that we've um, sort of locked in but but in general it's yeah very much just about what happens in those few days to decide you know how the how the whole vibe of the party goes down and it yeah it can be from you know we're crafting or videoing or choreographing or just getting in you know the heaps and heaps of puppets that we already have or making new things or um you know making music or we're just really open to everything and we're interested to yeah hear from people who are interested to come along for that week and come and play with us sounds fun yeah and then with a rocking Great party. Yeah. Yeah. For more information about Snuff Fest and all the different kind of components of it, including the Snuff Party, uh, jump online, www.snuffpuppets.com. Snuff Puppets are located at the Footscray Drill Hall, 395 Barclay Street, Footscray. As I said, short walk from the West Footscray Station. There's also plenty of space outside the hall for your bike. Uh, but yeah, go to the Snuff Puppets website, snuffpuppets.com for details and uh, you can book for Swamp and much more, including workshops and at a party. All sounds good to me. I've been chatting with Andy Freer and Nick Wilson from Snuff Puppets. Folks, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. My final guest joins us in the studio to talk about a new work being presented by Chambermaid. Zoe Barry, uh, welcome to Triple R and thanks for joining us to talk about The Nervous Atmosphere, a show created in response to you being struck by lightning. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Yes. <laughs> That in itself is a remarkable story. Please tell us more. Well, yes, it happened. The strikes happened between the spring of 2008 and the autumn of 2009. So over a six-month period. It happened twice um, on the same day. I was driving in my car in the Gippsland area in a storm. And then, yeah, so the first strike hit my windscreen and then the second one the road just in front of the car or the bonnet, I'm not quite sure. And then six months later, I was in my house in Fitzroy and it hit the house. 
What does it feel like to be struck by lightning, particularly in a car where the whole, suddenly, presumably the whole body of the car would be conducting electricity all around you and through you? Yes, well, I was extremely fortunate that I was protected by the structure of the car and the house, so I didn't have a direct hit, but I felt the extreme um, shock go up my arms. I felt it from the steering wheel, so I felt it from my hands and the steering wheel. My hands were really sort of clawing the steering wheel, and then I felt it going up my arms and then through my body, and at that moment the radio went static as well, so there was this sound that went with the feeling as well, and then when it happened a few seconds later, it was that same sensation. So it was like an electric shock, but it, I felt the point from my fingers and then through. And what was the sound? The sound, it's really interesting. All I can remember now is how I've talked about the sound. I can't remember the sound so much now. Which is one of those strange <laughs> things about the human memory, that you, you end up remembering the memory rather than the event itself. That's yeah. right, yes. But I remember the force of the sound of being the most intensity and the most, yeah, the most energy you could possibly imagine coming through in that sound. And so as an artist then, you've responded to that to create the nervous atmosphere. Yeah, I've been making the work slowly since then because that was 2008 when it happened and over time I've noticed that this experience and how it sort of changed my sense of how I sit within nature and how I think about um, charge and vibration, it was affecting all of my composing but then I thought I wanted to make some kind of work which eventually becomes, it's a, a remembering of the experience but also a conjuring of it so I'm trying to with my collaborators create a sense of what it is like to have this heightened sense of electrical charge and to be sort of mesmerized by this uh, interaction with nature and then how I felt different afterwards and so it's come together through Culture Lab at Arts House a residency and with Chambermaid and some residencies in America as well. You said that it change that the experience changed the way you sit in nature and that it changed your composition talk to us about those changes well in terms of the composition I think the thing that really affected me from the the strikes was the speed of them because it's so fast there's nothing you can do to protect yourself from them and a lot of the fear of it came from that sensation of knowing if it's coming to get you there's not much you can do and my music as a result has got slower and slower. <laughs> so it's like and I've, ta I've taken all of the energy and all of the frequencies in that thunder sound, the sound of the lightning, and stretched it out. So the music I'm writing is very slow and re re repetitive and plays with um, um, extremes of vibration and pitch. So it's as if I'm trying to stretch it out so I can sit within it and make some sense of it and have some more control over it. That absolutely makes sense. The opportunity to use your experience to study it, uh, to sit with it, sit within it. Uh, and because things happen so instantaneously, this is an opportunity to, as you say, to literally not just stretch out the memory, but stretch out the moment uh, and take control of it in a way. Yeah, exactly. And it's Whenever I'm playing this music, I feel very um, calm and sort of connected and in flow. It's very, um, it's real solace to play this kind of music. Now, you're a cellist yes. uh, and composer. Um, in terms of uh, your composition, do you compose for other instruments other than the cello? 
I do, but really since the pandemic, it was just me and my cello and I've really focused on cello um, over the last few years. Um, I have a string quartet as well, the letter string quartet, um, and I've composed with them and improvised with them a lot. So, um, yes, I'm very connected to the sonic possibilities of strings, but I'm particularly connected to cello in this work because of its um, range of frequencies and even the way that you play it because a lot of the music I'm doing for this show is really moving between notes there's lots of sliding between pitches and even that sensation of playing your cello in that way sort of helps um, conjure up the feeling of um, the disorientation that happens with something like this but it's also calming. I mean, for me, the, the cello is certainly one of my absolute favourite instruments in the in the from the classical musical world. For example, there is something so uh, there's a beautiful melancholy to it. Uh, the potential for kind of the resonance and the richness and the deepness of the work, um, uh, but which isn't to say that it can't also be lively and and uh and so forth but for you as a as a cellist what made it the instrument that you wanted to specialize in i was very fortunate when i was at primary school in adelaide as part of the um music department um uh, some teachers turned up one day when i was in year four and i had an incredible first cello teacher miriam morris who is based in victoria now who um selected me she looked at my hands and said I think I think you should be a cellist and I started learning from a great great teacher and then it just became my companion what was it about your hands is it was it the 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 breadth of the reach that you had for example well I think the lack of reach I've got really pretty small hands I don't know but I think they curved in a a good cello uh, way. <laughs> and clearly, I, I love the, the idea of somebody recognising a physical trait and going, this should be your instrument because, as opposed to going, well, look, you, you play the violin and the cello and, I don't know, maybe the trombone as well, just to throw something random in, mm-hmm. um, but you should specialise in the trombone because it's what you're best at. No, kind of short a shortcut directly to here is an instrument that, you will be suited to and presumably you are not just physically suited to playing it but emotionally suited as well. Yeah I think so I just feel so fortunate that that moment happened and that I've got to have a cello with me uh, throughout my life I really I just (laughs) I really often stop and think I can't believe that I make vibration as that's what I do I get to make vibration. Now, uh, for the nervous atmosphere, uh, as well as vibration, I mean, we have live looped cello, but there's also mm-hmm. uh, elements of text. Yes, I've, uh, the story is told about the three strikes, but also what was happening before in that time, but then where I sort of went to, as mentioning before, I sort of changed my relationship with nature and I, I for a while I thought that nature had chosen me and it was... And I sort of left the human realm and I was hovering somewhere up in the clouds perhaps and I was in a different psychic space. So um, the, t- the text is, is very sort of poetic and mesmerising to give people that sense of what it's like to sort of feel so adrenalised by a charge, by vibration, but also to sort of become a sleepwalker and quite sort of hypnotised for a while as I was trying to work out how to come back down to earth. 
which strikes me as a, in some ways, a, a fascinating conundrum to explore and present in a performance. You want to energize your audience, but you also want them to experience the slowed down nature of time that we've talked about and to be uh, immersed in this kind of rich, resonant vibration of sound. But also, you don't necessarily want them to, want them to be lulled in any way, presumably, because they might switch off, tune out, fall asleep. So, trying to find the balance there to keep them alert, but to also give them this kind of slower, more contemplative perspective. Talk to us about that challenge. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, yeah. One of the key words yeah, is mesmerizing or hypnotic, um, but maintaining attention across it, because. Um, a lot, a lot happens in the first part of the work where all of the, the disturbance and the, the shock and the fear happens and then it's about a very, very slow um, settling after that. So, you know, but if people are lulled and fall, to, fall asleep in it, that's fine too. <laughs> the work is designed to be felt physically and all of the language is designed to go into your... Uh, right hemisphere so that's going into that more dream space so it's not instructional and it's not um presentational so the idea is that people get into quite yeah a lulled space and so then they can go where they need to go in that space as well Zoe Barry is uh, the artist I'm speaking to about the work The Nervous Atmosphere uh, it's a, a chambermaid uh, production uh, uh, at Arts House, so in collaboration with Arts House uh, as a presenting partner, uh, and it's happening from the 13th to the 17th of September, 7:30 p.m. Wednesday to Saturday, 5 p.m. on a Sunday. I do love a Saturday after, sorry, a Sunday afternoon show. Um, there will be an Auslan interpreted performance on the 14th, uh, and also a post-show artist talk. Now, is that the same talk that you will be joined by Associate Professor Jonathan W. Marshall? No, yes, there's two separate talks. So tonight we've got a salon called Invisible Forces at Arts House at 6.30 where I will be joined by Professor Jonathan W. Marshall who's an academic over um, in Perth and he's written extensively on a French neurologist who is doing experiments with electricity and the body and hysteria and looking at gesture and performance as a way of diagnosis and his articles have had a big impact on this work and it's fed into this work so he he and I will be speaking this evening with Emily Collier moderating and then the artist talk um, after the show on the 14th is with my brilliant director and dramaturg Ingrid Vorent. Uh, then there is also a relaxed performance uh, on Sunday the 17th. Yes. Uh, and for tickets um Standard ticket is 20 bucks. Uh, pay if you can is 35 bucks and ten dollars for black ticks plus a booking fee for all of those different categories. And the performances of the nervous atmosphere are happening at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall, located on the corner of Queensbury Street and Errol Street, North Melbourne. And you can book by going to artshouse.com.au or by picking up your telephonic device of choice and calling 9322 3720 or 9322 Zoe, before I let you go, in terms of the, um, the, the creation and presentation of the, the nervous atmosphere, you said that uh, you did, had uh, time at residencies in the States as well. Mm. Talk to us about what that experience brought to the development of the work? 
Well, I, I was very fortunate to do a residency at the Lucid Art Foundation, which is in Northern California. Sorry, did you, the Lucid Art yeah, Foundation. Yeah, Lucid Art Foundation, which is a foundation that looks at the connections between art, nature and consciousness. And it was established by a surrealist painter, Gordon Onslow Ford, who was English, but he moved to that area and lived there for many decades. So it was established by him and an Iranian academic and artist, Fariba Bogzaran, who's a lucid dreaming specialist. <clears throat> so they started this foundation together because his artwork over the decades had moved from surrealism into painting very, very inner worlds of consciousness. And Fariba noticed that what people see when they're lucid dreaming was what he was painting. So they've set up this foundation, <coughs> pardon me, where really interesting exploration happens between um, art and nature and consciousness. And I realised that would be a good place for me to make this work because I, I thought this is actually what this work Perfect, is about. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Fariba helped me very much with creating this kind of dreamlike, a hypnotic space with the work. And then the work is being realised by our fantastic designer, Bosco Shaw, who's done the light and the set. And the lighting and the, the set design, it's more like an installation with this incredible light sculpture. And again, he's playing with um, intensities of vibration. So it's not lights to help tell the story. Like it is the story as well, like the, you know, the exquisite beauty and illumination you see with lightning and with storms in nature. He is bringing that to life, which blends with the music and the text. So it's very um, synesthesiac. Mm. <laughs> well, having experienced um, the Max Richter concert Sleep in Hobart mm. earlier in the year and being aware of the, the way that that was developed through the study of neuroscience and the kind of what happens to your brain and the sleeping patterns of your brain and so forth, uh, and having walked out of it uh, incredibly energized and alert i was like i need to learn more about kind of brain chemistry and clearly this is a show which has some similar ideas and themes at play about kind of and particularly the the uh, the the lucid dreaming aspect bringing that out of a dream state into a, a waking state through performance Exactly. And it is a way to think about what happens when a brain changes because of an external um, situation or occurrence. And then how do you how do you return to your brain or your body when something's um, pulled you away from it? So, yeah, we've spent a lot of time thinking very um, carefully about what the experience will be like for an audience physically and um, mentally and emotionally. It sounds like it's going to be a fascinating experience. The Nervous Atmosphere at Arts House, presented by Chambermaid uh, and created by Zoe Barry, who, uh, who's been my guest, running from the 13th until the 17th of September. Go to artshouse.com.au to book and for more info. Zoe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 